0: Verse 14 says this, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God, because they have, we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, and he did not raise up, if in fact the dead did not rise. Verse 16 says, And if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And then also... Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we have. all men are most pitiable. Look at verse 32. It says, And if in this manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, for what it's worth here... What Paul gives us, what God gives us through Paul in these handful of verses, is what would happen if there really wasn't a resurrection, what this would really be like. In other words, if the resurrection weren't a reality, what we have then is this kind of mindset. And to be honest, if the, if the resurrection isn't a reality, then this really is. So this is kind of what we're dealing with here. Notice what he says, and I'm just going to go through this quickly, and then we'll actually get into... Now on to reality. It tells us here that if Christ isn't risen, well, first of all, that anything I do up here is going to be meaningless. It's going to be, as the word is, empty. And the word for what it's worth in the Greek is kenos, and it simply means worthless, irrelevant, empty of anything of value. But not only is what I would share up here worthless, but then also you, what you've trusted in. Not the fact of your faith like you have trust and trust is meaningless, but the fact that you've put that trust in Jesus, and putting your trust in somebody that we claim is resurrected when he hasn't resurrected, puts us in a place Then, really, you're an idiot. You're an absolute fool, because you're trusting in something that is really, in essence, worth nothing. Notice in verse 15, it says, then we, that's Paul and the others, but by the way, who are penning out scripture, including the scripture we're reading here, well, then the Bible itself is found to be but a false witness. And the word there, pseudomartyria. And the word in its simplest sense means... Somebody who testifies lies. If indeed he hasn't raised up. And verse 16, it says, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. This is a different word than empty that we saw before. The word is Matthias and it means pointless or meaningless. (laughs) And therefore you're still in your sins. And the dead, well, they're atalumi, which means they've annihilated, they cease to exist. In verse 19, then, if this, in this life, Christ hasn't risen, well then, to be honest, of all the people in the world, we are the most pitiful people on the planet. Now, pull yourself out of the Christianity mindset, the Christian bubble you might be in at the second, and the Christian suit you might wear because we're here at church. And you look at a person, and they say, look at, I believe in a guy that lived 5,000 miles away 2,000 years ago, and he died for me, though uh, somehow he had a relationship with me beforehand, because after all, he's God in the flesh, and we all know how, that, how normal that is. He was born by a virgin, and then after all of that, he died for my sins, rose from the dead, and I have this relationship with him. It's not even spooky, even though I speak with somebody that was once dead. And I love him, though I'm not that kind of guy, but we have this great relationship, and one day he's going to come back down and me into the sky and remove me from this horrible place that's eroding in front of me. And and that does sound weird, doesn't it? It should sound weird if it's not true. And if I were to meet somebody like that and they were to put anyone else's name than Jesus in that spot, I would think they're a lunatic, wouldn't you? And what he says is, if I were to look at that person, what I think, wow, what they've trusted in really is, is dumb. It's, is, it's empty and pointless. And, and, and I go once a week to listen to some guy just rant and rave about this guy that he also says he's met. And, and though he's not kind of a bigamist he loves us both the same. And, he's, and, and I start to go, wow, that is really weird. And, and that, that trust that you have in this God of yours, this Jesus character, how pointless is that? Because truth be told, you're still the same person you used to be. That's at least what it appears. And if that's the case, well, after all, the, the dead just die and they cease to exist. And then you realize if they cease to exist, well, then we might as well party it up because there's no retribution or any form of accountability we have the day that we die. And you realize that is exactly the mindset of the world. And it all revolves around one event in history. One event. Not a bunch of healing events. Not a bunch of raising other people from the dead events. Not a bunch of really cool teaching events. Not a cool event of a woman giving birth though she was, hadn't known a man. I mean, all of those things are cool, but one event changes everything. One event. And if that event didn't exist, then the world has a right to call us the most pitiful people on the planet. After all, Trusting somebody we really have never met, and in the end of it all, bitten into the greatest con in history, and we live this delusional life and tell everyone we're sane, how is that not pitiful? At least you could say, well, they're pitiful, but at least they're pleasant. They said they'll pray for me. That's nice. That's better than I'll shoot at you. <laughs> and there is, a, there is another group of people that are very prominent in our area, and one of the prominent fundamental doctrines is that Jesus never even died on the cross, The preaching is that Judas took his place, because after all, he should have gotten his anyways. Jesus never really died, and therefore never really resurrected, and kind of got sucked up into the sky. And you realize, without this doctrine, without this belief... We're believing in another really nice man like everybody else. Why not Gandhi? Why not Buddha? Why not some other guy that just dresses up in a robe and eats yogurt and says nice things and writes books that people buy? You know, with really nice poems, with, you know, kind of piano, alcoholic music in the background. Like, I used to be an alcoholic, and the piano sort of that kind of sullen thing. Why, why this guy? And this guy, I mean, I'm going to have to learn another culture, and he I mean, he, eats, he eats weird things. And the guy that announced him made bugs. and I mean, why this guy? And you realize, as far as the world is concerned, this is the way we look. And you know the funniest part is? We just don't even care. We kind of knew it the moment we said yes. Now, if this isn't the case, and it clearly isn't the case, but I mean, in the end of it all, what you have is a group of people that say, well, let us eat and drink. After all, tomorrow we die. That's, by the way, what people say is carpe diem, seize the day. Why do you seize the day? Spend it today. I mean, if you were to say, you know, if you knew that tomorrow you were going to pass away, what's the first thing you would do? And is your first thought, max out my credit cards. After all, I won't have to pay them. And you realize that if you could seize the day, then the whole idea of it is, well, then let's just party today and forget about tomorrow. Isn't that the world we live in? Which makes us really weird people, and we just need to grab the hold of the fact we're going to be weird to people. Now back to reality, let's go to Matthew chapter 28 and see what really happened. Worthless, irrelevant, pointless, we're just going to cease to exist, so we might as well pitifully just try to eke out something nice while other people are seizing advantage of the world around us. Praise God that's not what we're about. Chapter 28, verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, we have four different gospel accounts, and every one of those gospel accounts, we're going to have a specific way that we're going to look at how the resurrection story takes place. They don't conflict at all. Consider this. There are events taking place in front of us, and there are four different directors. Four different directors that each have a specific way they want to present Jesus. As the Holy Spirit has specific ways that he's told us in the Old Testament, this is what he must be. He must be the king over everyone. He must be the servant of all. Those two don't seem to reconcile, and God says, I didn't ask you to reconcile them. I'm going to give you each a specific story that'll clearly prove it and then just show that I'm bigger than your math. He's got to be fully God, but fully man. And you go, wait a minute, we don't operate in the 400% range. God says, I do. I'm not limited to your math and all of this. So he gives us four gospels so we could fully believe everything that God promised us in the old Testament and and things that are written in some cases, 2000, 3000 years before. Say, this has always been the case. There's never been a plan B. Before the foundation of the world, I knew this was going to happen. Now, with all of that, God gives Matthew the blessing of being able to present Jesus as the king overall. And one of the fundamental aspects of a king in regards to that is the power of a testimony, the testimony of his king, of his kingdom, very fundamentally important issues. And with that, for what it's worth, Matthew operates in sets of twos because the Bible makes clear to us that the testimony of two or more is a binding testimony. So hear me out on this. The brothers in chapter 4 were called two by two. Uh, in chapter 8, two demonics in the, Ger- in the Gergesenes. Uh, in chapter 9, two blind men were healed by Jesus. In chapter 11, it's John the Baptist who sends two of his own disciples to go and find out whether Jesus is really the guy they're looking for, because two guys are a proper testimony. And between that, Jesus sends out his twelve, two by two. Ultimately, he'll send out his seventy, two by two. And then after all of that, chapter 20, by the way, for what it's worth, mom of James and John, mom, come over and bids for Jesus, uh, to Jesus, for her two sons. Two blind men will be healed in chapter 20. Chapter 21, two disciples will be sent to get the cold Jesus we'll write on. Chapter 22. When they say, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says, I'll give you two, from which everything hinges upon. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. These two are the proper testimony for all of the commandments. Uh, besides beside all that, it's two false witnesses that will have to come forth to convict Jesus in chapter 26. Very clearly noted in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 27, it's, it's Pilate who brings before the crowd Jesus in Barabbas and says, Which one of these two do you actually want? And makes very clear in Matthew twenty seven thirty eight that there will be two robbers that will be crucified on each side of Jesus. And, of course, in chapter twenty seven fifty one that the veil will be torn in two. And yet, in all of that, it's chapter 18 when Jesus brings that all to a point when he tells us that the mouth of two or more witnesses, or three witnesses, a matter is established. That's verse 16. In verse 19, it says, if two agree on earth, so it is in heaven. In chapter, or verse 20, it says, if two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. And you realize with all of this, God is consistently working on this issue of getting a couple people and saying, okay, the two of you, you're going to be the witness of this. The two of you, you're going to be the witness of this. And also God here is taking the lens of a producer, a director, and he's looking and he's looking at the scene and he's going, of all the women, of all the situations that are taking place, let's bring in two. And the two we're bringing in, interestingly enough, are these two that we read here in verse 1. It tells us the first of this is a woman named Mary both of them seem to be. One is named Mary Magdalene. According to the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that Jesus had cast out seven demons from this woman. Now, living near Camden, this is one place where you don't have to spend an awful lot of time convincing people, in all honesty, that demon possession is actually real. I mean, you can kind of see it around you, and you just, I mean, and the weird thing is, is that as Christians, we kind of go, well, this possible, I don't know, is this, you know, but you've got nothing to lose to just kind of come up and say, hey, well, in the name of Jesus, stop being so freaky. And you realize that in these days, there was a gal, and she was possessed by seven demons, and she had somewhere in these three and a half years of Jesus's ministry, has encountered Jesus, and was absolutely delivered from the power of hell. I mean, of all of the other people we read in Scripture, there's only one other situation we read where someone had more than one demon at all. And that's the individuals, of course, at the Gergesenes, where we read, we are legion because we're many. And so she really kind of gets in the top rung of how horrible your life must be under the power of hell. And this particular woman has given her entire life to surrender to Jesus. The other woman we read here is the other Mary. Well, we'll read, by the way, in the other Gospels that there was a Mary who was the mother of James. So there's two particular women. a story like this and says people are definitely going to read this. By the way, most women weren't even allowed to learn to read this and go to verse here. A couple things. According to for what it's worth in the other Gospels as well, in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, that there were two individuals at Jesus' death. One whose name was It was Joseph of Arimathea. He's a very wealthy man. And the other is a man named Nicodemus. We know him from John 3 as Nick at night, the guy who comes at night to speak with Jesus. And with it, these two individuals ask for the body of Jesus. And according to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, they take 100 pounds of aloe and myrrh and, and basically embalm Jesus and then wrap him in linen cloth. Now, that's just to try to give Jesus a proper burial, which, by the way, for what it's worth... In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, something strange in all of this is in chapter 53, it tells us this, and this is 700 years before Jesus is born on earth, and it says that he was assigned a grave with the wicked. I'm sorry, he was assigned a death with the wicked, but a burial with the rich. Now, that doesn't make any sense to any of us, or does it? A grave... And the point is simple. How does somebody get, die like a wicked man and yet still get assigned such a beautiful burial? Well, that's very evident. That's exactly what takes place here. So these two men have now taken Jesus and basically mummified him. Not in the weird ways they gut him and all that stuff that they would do with a mummy. But they basically wrap him up in a big body cast. Now that's, by the way, kind of important. Because understand, when you take aloe and you wrap it in linen and you wrap it on a person in the cool of a tomb, it isn't like the kind of thing just kind of gets wet and soggy. It hardens up. So in other words, Jesus is in a body cast, which makes it even cooler when someone comes in and sees the linen cloth, Because what they see is something that looks a bit like a cocoon, if you think about it. Which means, unless Jesus were to actually manifest in some new way, you've got to pop Jesus out of that thing. It's kind of a fun thought. Now, here's a couple other things you might not consider. That culturally, you are allowed to continue this particular burial rite for seven years after a person's death sign of your devotion would be two things. By the way, the most important thing to many Jewish people is their burial, where they're buried and how they're buried. So understand for seven days, you can continue to cover someone in aloes and in myrrh and in frankincense and in particular things, by the way, that are symbolic of a blessing of death transferring, of course, over to that place where you stand before the Lord. Now, these women are definitely showing themselves to be such ladies. They're so devoted to Jesus, they would rather be with a dead Lord than with a living world at this particular moment. And they're doing it at the first available moment. Remember, it's Sabbath, and because it's Sabbath, that means you can't work. You can't walk farther than a stadia from your house. And Jesus, at this point, though we're not really sure where this particular place is, is argued over whether it's Gordon's tomb or not. But either way, these women have to take this trek. Now, this isn't women. Now, there are people that are out at times when everyone's supposed to be in their house. But I guarantee you, the people who are out at that moment are up to no good. And you've got a couple women heading out in the dark by themselves at a time when all of the decent and responsible people are in their houses trying to rest. And while the rest of the world is sleeping, these women are coming and chugging with them their own mixture, which Mark tells us they had prepared. Between Matthew and Mark, they had prepared this special thing to anoint Jesus. That's what it tells us. So they're dragging this thing with them because they really want to go and they want to anoint Jesus one more time. Well, why so early? Well, first of all, of course, because they love him and they just want to be with him at this first chance they get. But there is another reason we could easily forget. To give someone a proper burial... You want to make sure that there's a lot of wailing and a lot of mourning. As so, a matter of fact, you hire a group of people. And it's sort of like you kind of have them on your phone and speed dial. Just in case somebody passes away, you want to make sure you call them right away so you can book the proper wailers. Because there's always going to be wailers out there and you want to get the good ones. The ones that are the loudest that weep with the most emotion and that kind of thing. Personally, I think all you need to do is find a bunch of 13 to 15 year old girls and just you know get them to watch one of those movies and then... Set them loose. But, uh, sorry, that's going to get me in trouble at home later. Anyways, uh, with that, get the idea here. So, you've got somewhere over the last day, it's very likely that what happened is there were a group of whalers that were hired. Who, by the way, will not and were not legally allowed to start whaling until after the morning sacrifice. You know, because after all, who wants a whaler at your house if you live next door? And you're like, oh no, this is going to be a really bad week. You know, Jim next door passed away, and um, I'm going to get no sleep. And so you realize, you know, it's kind of like there's kind of hours of quiet. And so these women are there before that, which means that there are people basically getting up this morning with the purpose of crying. You know, you're a professional crier and you're going to get up this morning. Some of you are thinking, wow, why can't we have that today? I would be good at that. I'd be a manager. Well, get the idea in all of this that some people are getting up this morning with the idea that they're going to go to work and their work is, it's the first day of the week. By the way, it's Sunday for them, it's first day of the week. It's, and I'm going to go and I'm just going to start crying my eyes out. That's what we do. And somewhere down the line in all of this, you're going to come back and someone's going to go, you know what? Sorry, I, I know we hired you for this gig, but you're going not going to be needed today yeah and then it's like but don't cry about it i'm sure you'll there'll be some other reason to cry before the day is done so there's a group of people who are going to be unemployed for the day because of this there's another group of people and i wonder what they're going to be like who by the way are the religious leaders and they've had to deal with the fact that of the 10 basic rules of jurisprudence they've broken every one of them for jesus's trial Every set standard and protocol for, for proper legal right, every bit of it has been broken in Jesus' trial. Now that's something you're going to have to deal with. So somewhere down the line, whether they're sleeping or not, dealing with the fact of the memory of Judas Iscariot coming back, throwing the money they've given him into, the, into their, right before them, into their counsel and saying, I've betrayed innocent blood, and their own testimony, so what? They didn't say he wasn't. They just said, so what? I guess that's your problem, isn't it? It's not ours. You betrayed him. And that information has to, you have to go to sleep with. And while all of this is happening, the Passover is taking place and the lamb is being slaughtered. And then as Jesus dies on the cross, Matthew records specifically a, an earthquake. And that earthquake, by the way, for what it's worth, sends the centurion who's overseeing this crucifixion to say, truly this was the Son of God. While all of this happens, there's also an 8-story veil that is somewhere between 8 to 12 inches thick that is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, you figure out how an 8-story veil that is going to weigh somewhere around 160 to 320 tons is going to be torn from top to bottom. By the way, it's interesting because on that veil, there was something, and I think you might want to know about it as we get into our text, and again, I'm just sort of laying the ground rule, so when we go through this, we go, oh, that makes sense. You see, back with Solomon's temple, there was something really important in the Holy of Holies. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that Ark of the Covenant had on top of it a mercy seat made out of solid gold where blood would be splattered, and in between that, are, and that's on the two sides of it, would be these two things called cherubim. Cherubim are a species, apparently. In uh, the first place we meet them, by the way, as guardians, once um, Adam and Eve bit into that which they were not supposed to, when were removed, so they couldn't go into the Tree of Life. And the point is really simple God doesn't want you spending eternity, He doesn't want you spending eternity away from Him he's so like, I don't want them into that. So these particular species are guarding the entrance into Eden because I don't want you biting into something and spending eternity in your state. It's interesting, from that point on, it's the cherubim that you see in this mercy seat where blood is in between it. And then it's God who dwells between those cherubim, God who dwells between those cherubim, the God who dwells between those cherubim. And in all of that, these individuals, they know that the high priest would go in once a year on the day where the sacrifice would be given for the sins of the people and he would go before that mercy seat where the two cherubim would be. And Solomon would take that thing when it came from a tabernacle to a temple and he'd put two bigger angels up beside it so that you can kind of get the idea, wow, God dwells between this. But when that temple was destroyed in 586 BC, the the ark was gone. There's all kinds of guesses of where it went, but when the new um, temple was built, no ark of the covenant. Which means we have no angels, no cherubim from which God dwells between. So what did they do? They took the two, or they took that big veil and they put on it the cherubim. So that you would get the idea that when the high priest went behind that veil, he was going where the two angels would be, where God dwells between them. That was the idea. Which means, if you think about it, that would be the idea of us growing up with our understanding of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. That was the, the angels that guarded the place where man was intimate with God, where he walked with God, and he enjoyed God, and he spoke with God, and he listened with God, but he's sinful now. And something separates him from God. And a sacrifice must be made to get to that place where we could be beyond that veil. And then Jesus dies on the cross. The perfect sacrifice is the limb of God. And that thing, imagine an eight-story veil that thick, how loud that tearing would be. And all the people that, by the way, are in the temple at that time, how freaked out you would be at such a loud sound. See, the whole idea of this is that God would tear such a thing to say, look at now that the sacrifice has been made, God's coming out. Up to this point, you wanted to come in and God's like, look and I'm coming out. I'm coming out to be with you. But that sacrifice must be made for this because I want to be intimate with you. I want to be close with you. That's the point. Now, here are two women, and they've made their way in. They're mourners that haven't woken up yet because the sun hasn't risen yet. The morning sacrifice hasn't been laid on the altar. And these women are there, and they're ready to anoint a body that isn't even going to be there while the rest of the world seems to be lying asleep. And with all of this, and you're going, we're in trouble. That's one verse. We've got a lot to go. And it tells us in this that as they got to the tomb, look at verse 2. It tells us in verse 2, Behold, there was a great earthquake. This is our earthquake now since Jesus' death. At Jesus' dying was the earthquake where rocks split and, of course, where that veil was torn. Now we have our second earthquake. At this earthquake, something else opens. The first earthquake, the first thing that opened was the Holy of Holies. At the second earthquake, what opens here is the tomb. Might I just suggest to you, since Jesus didn't have a problem getting through a wall, that the tomb wasn't open to get Jesus out. The tomb was open to get you in. So you could see he wasn't there. The veil was ripped to show you that God was coming out. The tomb was open to show you you could come in and see he isn't there. And so with this, what a fun thing. God gives us not two angels, though according to John, there will be two. But this particular cameraman focuses on one of them. Why is that? If there's two to make a witness, I'm going to be looking for another one. And God says, you're on to something. So what it tells us here in verse 2 is, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, do you see something funny in this? Because I do. According to the text prior to this, there were the Jewish leadership were very aware of Jesus' promise of a resurrection. So much so that they really wanted to make sure if there was any way to keep him in that tomb, they were going to do it. And so what they did is, according to the, to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, that they went then and they asked Pilate for a guard to be set over his tomb. Now I guarantee you, those religious leaders were very aware of where that tomb was and very aware who was put in there and very aware that he stayed in there when they got that Roman guard. There were enough of these guys with their soldiers to make sure that there was no detour, that there was no turning to the left or to the right. You got to your tomb and he's staying in there and they say, we need a Roman guard. We're going to make sure that they don't try to do something fancy, those like kooks from the northern area of Galilee. We're going to make sure that they don't try to pull on some big con. We're going to put a Roman guard there. Now understand how important a Roman guard Guard is. Roman Guard are four men, and they work in shifts of three hours at a time. Now, as they work in shifts of three hours at a time, the idea would be simple. That means that's the watches. That's from six to nine p.m. nine to midnight, midnight to three, and then the fourth watch from three to six in the morning. Now, with that in mind, during that time, falling asleep was a real problem, because if a guy fell asleep, the entire group, the four of them would be tortured to death. So you understand, it's kind of important that none of your guys fall asleep. And this is the way that they did it, is that each one of them had a torch. And as they had a torch, if one guy started to nod off, they would take that torch and just set it next to the flammable mumu that those guys wore. I mean, those little mini skirts those Romans wore, they were very proud of their legs, apparently. And so what you did is you put that thing, because all it took was a skirt on fire to get you up quickly. As a matter of fact, for what it's worth, I mean, it seems kind of fun, and I'll agree with you. In Revelation 16, 15, Jesus says, listen to this, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. And the idea of it is, I come when you don't expect. Blessed is he who watches and And keeps his garments. Everyone understood what that meant. The idea is you fall asleep. Things aren't going to be so good for you. You're going to wake up really uncomfortable. Because I don't want to be tortured to death. I don't have a problem setting you completely on fire. So I don't. But I can't kill you because then well, you're kind of sleeping in the eyes of the Romans and we need all four of us. So we're going to just make sure. So the idea of keeping your garments is key. So we have four guys in three hour shifts at a time and they're making sure. And, and they put what we read as a Roman seal. Now a Roman seal is kind of like a police line except if you go past it, it's punishable by death. Now understand that those four men that a Roman guard come from, come from a platoon of a much larger men. Now the platoon of the much larger men take a vote. They cast a vote on which four men they're willing to allow from their platoon to be the guard. Now understand why. Because if those four men fail at their mission, the entire platoon is executed. Now think about that. In this room, someone comes over that's a centurion. And as he comes over as a centurion, he says, here's our mission. We've got to watch a grave to make sure nobody steals from the grave. Now we kind of think, well, that's understandable. Maybe he put and buried some riches with him. Pharaohs did that. That's understandable. I think we're pretty good with that. Now, with that in mind, one of them had a horn to call in an entire Roman legion if he needed to, if there was some form of rebellion. So what happens? We go, well, this is now, the moment that happens, this is an issue of life or death for us. Because we got to pick the four guys we are sure, first of all, are hyper and never sleep. Let's be honest. And we're going to take four guys that we know are rough and tumble enough that they're going to do that. Now, we didn't pick every guard. We just get. We don't even know which of the watches our particular platoon gets. We just know we're going to pick four guys. So we go, well, let's see. He's kind of a spaz. Let's make sure we get him. He won't fall asleep. This guy's kind of a pyro. That will work out really well. He'll make sure nobody else falls asleep. This guy's kind of tough, so we'll make sure he comes so that he isn't, you know. And you go, those are the four. And then we're just, oh, well, I just hope they don't fail because I'm not interested in being executed. Well, that's the idea. That's how the roman empire it wasn't like they took four gods never really gotten real exercise in their life and in the, in the end of it all we're like mm, i'm ready to go okay let's do it i'm sorry i'm a narcolept, but that's okay and it tells us here now that makes this even more fun because what we read is somehow this angel just kind of popping down from heaven was enough to make the earthquake now that's kind of fun it doesn't read the angel or that he even had a name Now, obviously, he must have had, we'll assume he had a name. We just don't read that he was apparently not so high up in the order that he was somebody that everyone's like, oh, you know, I'm going to send Gabe or I'm going to send Michael, someone everyone knows. And people are like, well, we think it is. The Bible doesn't say because, to be honest, it just isn't the point. The point is he's just an angel. But just an angel was enough to come down and make the entire earth shake. And he had a specific mission. Apparently, he had two specific things he had to do. Because ultimately, he'll talk to these gals and they'll say, Hey, so I told you, right? You know that I told you. In other words, you can see, you know, his ears up in heaven and God's looking, he's like, I'm looking for an angel, just any just angel. How about you? You seem like a pretty good angel. So, with that in mind, here's your mission. First of all, I need you to roll away a stone. It's about 10, 11 tons. Not an issue for you. Um, but it's going to be cool. We'll do it in a kind of a dramatic way. We'll kind of, you know, put some fog machines in. And we'll kind of make the earthquake. And, you know, kind of something you'll see in an 80s rock concert. And then, I want you just to kind of relax. Because the mission isn't done. That's only part of it. Then the other part is, two gals are going to show up. And you need to tell them that I'm not there. That's going to be the issue. Are you ready? Go. And you think, Awesome. I'm going down. So down you go, and you go, and you roll. And so he just knows, why does he sit on the rock? Now, there's all, I mean, we tend to think, well, this is kind of a guy that's now kind of, you know, just kind of lounging, just waiting. And it's just kind of the the flipping nonchalance of it's kind of fun. But the point is, he just knows that if he rolls away the stone from the tomb, it's a place to sit till the girls show up. Because sooner or later, they're going to come to the tomb. God already told him that. And I'm looking, I'm going, two witnesses. I'm kind of missing here. I've got one, but that's okay. Somewhere down the line, I've get another one coming. Now with this, it tells us, and again, we're at verse 2. There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and he rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. His countenance was like lightning. And his clothing was white as snow. Verse 4. Oh, we do have a problem. This Roman seal... I mean, you roll away that stone, you've broken a Roman seal. That's punishable by death. And there are four guys there that aren't going to be sleeping. Or oh, verse 4. And the guards shook for fear of them. Now, I want you to realize these are guys that are like Chuck Norris guys. You know, these are guys that are like, they don't do push ups, they push the earth down. You know, kind of, they're like, come on, let's go. I mean, who do we pick? We pick the guys that we make sure are going to complete the task because I don't want to die. So off these guys go and they're hey, okay, let's do it. Let's show me. Give me a Galilee, you know. And it's nighttime and no person in their right mind, even if they're a robber or a banshee or a raider, are going to get near these guys because these guys are like police cops from Chicago. They shoot first and then they say, stop, you know. I mean, that's what I remember. You know, it's like the first one was a warning shot. I didn't kill you. I just paralyzed you. That was a warning shot. You no' know, and they're, they're like, they look, it's like they knew where the four guys were. Those were the guys with the torches. Anything else that moved out there, they just started swording. And no, they're like, oh, let's go. Let's take them down. Let's go. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. What are you ready for? I don't know. I just don't want to sleep. Yeah, yeah, all right. Well, okay, here we go. All right. And then all of a sudden, And down comes this angel. The ground starts to shake, rolls over the stone, and he sits, and he's like, yo. Yeah. And boom, they all just go, ah, and they fall over, and they pass out you got to see the humor in that. These are big guys. It's one thing when you're like, Okay, I'm already scared. Of course. But these are big guys. These are guys like they're picking their teeth with their sword, you know. All right, yeah. What do you do for fun? Uh, I just kill things for fun. All right. Ah! And they pass out. And you can just see the angel going, this is going to be really fun, which means this is the stepping over the women have to do, lugging their thing that they're trying to, they're looking for dead body, one dead body of Jesus. And they're like, wow, here's four others. I didn't recognize, where are these guys? Now, we don't even know. And, we, and here's the great thing, ladies, just so you know, these women are heralded in scripture, but these women had no idea what they were going to do when they got there because they're like, oh yeah, there was that stone. How are we going to roll away that stone? 10 and 11 tons. I mean, you kind of think that's kind of an important detail. But you know, when you're in love, it really doesn't matter, does it? Somewhere down the line, you're like, oh, it's all going to kind of work its way out. I've got I've got a big jug full of glop here that I really can't wait to put on my Lord. We made it ourselves. We kind of had a glop party, you know? Apparently, that's either breaking the Sabbath or it's okay to make glop on the Sabbath. And now here they are and they're bringing it with them and they're like, whoa, you know, it's like, you, I mean, it's got to be scary, right? I mean, you're there you're a couple ladies and you're kind of a little bit defenseless and you got your, 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 you know, a torch maybe you're taking with you which then tells everyone else that's out there, here we are! And, you know, we're kind of bragging it over and as you're dragging over you're like, whoa, I think I see something. I think I see, what? This looks like a soldier. This looks like a soldier. What's, what's a soldier? What? Wow, oh, you just see a sleeping." soldier every day that's going to be a weird thing and then somewhere down there but wait a minute or could they see him because according to the text it tells us that this particular guy that sat on the stone if you remember was emanating light that's what it tells us here doesn't it this is his countenance was like lightning now you think about what lightning's like it doesn't matter how dark it is your eyes are closed but when lightning flashes you know it so imagine you're kind of like, oh, there's a bright light. They're heading up the hill. There's a bright light. What's so bright up there? What's going on? What's this bright light? It's a guy. It's a guy. He's a. It's a. Glow, it's a glowing guy. It's a glowing guy. Yeah, I know it doesn't make sense to me. Oh, and there's there's like some dead soldiers next to him. Now, what part of you thinks? Well, this is an ordinary day, but it was an ordinary day when you started. You came into this thing with the idea that you just wanted to cover someone that you loved, even though he was dead, with just one last statement of saying, thank you. Thank you for caring for me when everyone else hated me. Thank you for delivering me from seven demons. Thank you for when everyone else treated me like the maniac. You were the one person who would sit down and give me real life, give me real everything. And. And then I watched you tortured, and somehow in all of this, you made it look like the cross was worth it. You made it look like the cross was worth it. Like there was something that was going to be on the other side of the cross, so important, that the cross was really worth it. That the cross was worth it. And I realized, this is what makes the difference here, beloved. You see, the world knows that Christianity involves a cross. And though the world knows that Christianity involves a cross, they also know that that cross, well, um, that cross is a place of sacrifice. And that's what they see. Well, I don't want to become a Christian. I have to stop partying. I have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. I have to stop doing drugs. I mean, this is the stuff that's fun. All they see is the cross. And they're like, well, what's worth that? I mean, basically, it's like, hi, come join our club. Everyone hates us. Everyone thinks we're idiots. They think that we're all living off of this crutch of this weird delusion and this great con. And we're the dumb people. Come join our club and stop doing everything you think is fun. So for what? So you can come and give money to a church and sing Kumbaya and join hands with people. Unless someone's cute in the choir, you ain't joining unless there's something else on the other side of that. Why in the world are we here? Well, these women, notice it tells us that the angel, and ladies, talk about something making you look good. Four crack soldiers just passed out in front of you, and you girls are like, he's like, hey, don't be afraid. And you're like, wow, I didn't pass out. (laughs) They did. I didn't pass out. Think about that for a second. Now, what person writes this? What man writes this 2,000 years ago? Think about this. The Bible's limiting? Funny, I think the heroes here were women. That's a bit strange. The angel answered and he said to the women, Don't be afraid. Now it's interesting because if you look at verse 4 and verse 5, it almost appears as if they happened simultaneously. It's almost as if these Roman soldiers passed out in front of them. Now that's something to consider. Don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus. He was crucified. Yeah, that which we know. But he's not here. So you see he's risen. Just like he told you. You do remember he told you he was going to raise again, right? Remember all those times he said, I'm going to die and be crucified, hand over to the Gentiles to be spat upon, mocked, scourged, and die. But then on the third day, I'll raise again. Did you not hear that last part because you blew a fuse when he said the whole die part? You do know that he did tell you this, right? I mean, this is what Scripture says. He's not here, he's risen. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. For what it's worth... It seems pretty likely to me that to make this, to take out any of these words, makes this thing complete nonsense. And I've heard this from particular individuals where they said, well the original text, which by the way, you have to actually look at any of them to actually say you know, you've looked at an original text. There's not an original text that removes any of this. But there are ones that, I kid you not, these commentators that try to make themselves look so smart that say, well really what the angel said was, he's not here. You're in the wrong tomb. Go see the place where he laid. He's down two tombs. That's the idea. And you're kind of like, well you're missing the most important statement, which is that he is, he's risen. And here's the point. And, and I I love the way that Matthew sets this up. Because at this moment, the women have to deal with the most bizarre information they've ever had to deal with. Now they followed a guy. They've been financially supporting this guy. And he's been doing really wild and woolly things. I mean, he's been standing in front of people that he's making enemies with people nobody makes enemies with. And then he raises people from the dead and he heals the sick. And he's got all these amazing stuff. He's turning water to wine. And this is a really cool guy. But now this is a brand new information. I mean, this is a guy that apparently, according to scripture, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down and take it up again this is jesus not being murdered in the sense that he was like sort of blindsided but jesus gave up the ghost it even says that he gave up his spirit this was jesus relinquishing and as he did all of this now it's like look at he told you he was going to raise again i know that didn't make any sense well it's true it's absolute reality it is absolute reality and there's a part of you that goes well an empty tomb says he's not here i'll agree with that part we still have a problem. Well, the problem also involves the fact that we're missing one person. Now, notice it says, Indeed, he's risen from the dead. Indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now, behold, I've told you. Now, what does that say? That says, hey, by the way, you've been told. I, I did my job. Would you sign this thing? Kind of like the courier. He's like, okay, I've handed you the message. Go ahead and sign this thing. Thank you very much. I'm going to go back to God because I've done what God told me to. Roll away the stone, freak out a bunch of guards, tell the women the truth. And I thought, man, what a cool to-do list. Now, with that, it says in verse 8, they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to bring the disciples' word. And I think, wow, wait a minute. I'm still missing. Okay, but this was one witness. They took the witness of one angel and said, woo! Cool, let's go tell everyone. I'm missing a second witness. Doesn't a matter get established by a second witness? Hasn't Matthew set that up throughout the whole thing? Look at verse 9. Who is my second witness? And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them. And this is where everything changes. You see, this whole belief in Jesus isn't about an empty tomb, though that's cool. The empty tomb is the product of a living person. You're aware of that, right? Listen, the empty tomb is the product of... Of a living person. The reason the tomb is empty is because, well, it's not needed. The tomb's for dead people. Jesus just isn't dead anymore. Now, of course, you've heard all kinds of crazy things perhaps about people like Jesus. Well, to be honest, he didn't really die, he just kind of went into a coma. He swooned. And I think, wow, that's a really great thing, because his arms and his legs would be pulling out a socket. He's pierced in the side. He has no—I mean, his entire back has been torn to shreds, which means he's lost all of his blood. He's got a complete blood loss, and there are over 300 different bacterium, including Staphylococcus, which would eat his flesh while he's in the tomb, sitting in his cute little cocoon. Now, just imagine for a moment that Jesus actually kind of pops out of the coma. What a miracle that is! How in the world is he getting out of his cocoon? And then let's just say that actually does happen, where Jesus kind of well, kind of rolls over, and he rolls over, and he's like, pum, 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 and he hasn't hit that that. 11 the st- 11 11-ton stone. And let's just say, out of the weirdness of it all, he actually gets a little momentum, and boom, he actually knocks the stone down, and then rolls out of the thing. And then with all of that, how is he going to get into a house with a bunch of locked guys that are freaked out because he thinks they think the Romans are going to kill him? Do you think he's just like, kunk, kunk, kun. Someone's knocking at the door. We'll let him in. Hold on, we think the Romans are going to kill us. Think about that. Let's just say, just to add to it, that someone is actually weird enough to go, okay, well, let's open the door. It's probably not a Roman. They don't kill people at five in the afternoon. So, and they open the door, and there's Jesus kind of laying on the ground. Hi, I'm alive. And they think, whoa, this is a miracle. I'm going to give up my whole life for Cocoon Man. This is awesome. Is that really what you think could happen? Meanwhile, everyone else is trying to figure out, and then they're like, wow, we actually, you know, you're really still in bad shape. We better get you someplace where you can get some R&R, Jesus, so you can marry Mary Magdalene and get a tomb in Talpia and all the other weird things people invent. You know, obviously, you know, you've been digging her for a while since you cast out those demons. And, you know, and, and, you know, and all the things they want to make up, think about all that for a second. And now, now it is 2,000 years later, and we're in the con and going, whoopee, let's have meet in a cool little nursery. Yeah, Jesus met them in verse nine, and and Jesus met them. No, notice what he says to them. First of all, he says, "Rejoice," which, by the way is one of the weirdest commands Jesus has ever given anyone. Because at that moment, I would be so freaked out, I wouldn't know what to do. And, and, but you know in those moments when you're so freaked out, you're like, you don't know what to do, Jesus is like, well, hit the rejoice switch, okay? Because at this moment, you could kind of wet yourself. Don't hit that button. You could just start breaking down and crying. I, I'm not trying to get too offending to the feminine factor. But, you know, you could probably break down and cry. Don't do that. Please don't do that here. Don't do that. Those, rejoice. Hit the rejoice button. That's what you should do right now. The rejoice button. And you're like, okay. (laughs) But notice his message. So they came and they held him by the feet and worshipped him. No, no, what? Okay, so the rejoice button means boom, to the feet you go. Right? I don't know what else to do. I'm going to cling to him. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Wow, deja vu. Didn't that what the angel said? They said, he's not here. He's risen. Jesus shows up to me. You kind of realize he's not there. He's risen. He's in front of you. You got that same message. And then he goes, go to Galilee. Do you realize that's exactly what the angel said? So go to Galilee. And there they will see me. It's like, okay, guess what? There's my second witness. And listen, beloved. The reason I'm testifying of Jesus being raised from the dead this person that lived 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh, is because he's alive. And the reason I know he's alive is because he met me. And he met me at a time when I was so freaked out and so empty and so desperate. And you're like, well, Jesus is just one of those people for desperate people. Yeah, you know, the thing is, everyone's desperate. Some people are just too proud to admit it. But the bottom line, Jesus is the Savior for desperate people. He's also the Savior for people that are just willing to be wise enough to recognize they're desperate without him. So with that, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came to the city. Now we've got a problem here. Remember those four guard? They passed out. Now which one of you? I mean, which one of you? You know, you've got you know, Gigantus, Maximus, you know, Tufficus, you know, Jetleicus, You know, and you all have to come over, and you have to be. Which one of you wants to do? You tell them. No, oh, you tell them. Yeah, you tell them. Oh, okay. Um, we, followed, we, we passed out. Must have been some kind of man meld or something, you know, kind of just sprayed something that No, let's be honest. I can tell by the condition of your drawers, you freaked out and passed out. <laughs> Behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests. Notice they didn't go to the Roman legion because if they had gone there, it was instant death. So now they have to go back to the chief priests. It's interesting. How did the world did they get involved in all of this enough to they send, send a, well that's their only hope. Think about it. These four guys have to look at each other and go. We're dead men. We're dead men. Our platoon's dead men. And and so, by the way, who do you think actually tortures the four men that did it? It's your own platoon. Because they all are going to die as a result of it. And you're like, what do we do? Well, there's only one hope. Maybe somehow we can try to do some kind of maneuvering with the religious leadership. Okay, well, that's where we'll go then. So they went there. And you could just see the the chief priest, and he's like, don't worry about it. (laughs) I've got friends. <laughs> this is what I want you to tell them. You fell asleep. I know that means they could kill you and all that. I'll take care of it. Hey, take some money while you're at it, okay? Go get yourself some nice place somewhere in, I don't know, Turkey or something. and I've got it taken care of. So they assembled the chief priests and elders, gave them a large sum of money to the soldiers, and said, tell them the disciples came at night, stole the body while they slept. Which, by the way, makes very clear that the tomb is still empty and the body is still missing. Because if the body was still missing, because at the moment... Do you want to stop Christianity? It was simple. All you had to do was say, here's your body. That's it. You're done. That's so all you needed was a body, and there was no body. There was no body because, well, it takes a dead body, and Jesus didn't have a dead body to have anymore. And imagine you looking in and going, wow, look, hello, and there's that giant cocoon you're looking through, and you're like, something's a little strange here. Yes. So his disciples came at night and stole the body while we slept. If it comes to the governor's ears, and of course it's going to, we'll take care of that. We've gone, we'll take care of it. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, of course, as you would too, which then, of course, is commonly reported to the Jews to this day. So what that means is, in the eyes of the rest of the world, that you've got a bunch of guys who of course were supposed to die, but somehow mysteriously didn't die for falling asleep at this particular thing. The platoon mysteriously didn't die in all of this. And what you have then is this. A group of ignorant backwoods fishermen move from Nowheresville, Middle East, to a city where they're not even allowed to speak in public because the way they speak is considered abominable. They can't even speak in their own synagogues. And then they elevate a fellow and they deny and though and, 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 and they deny him at his death, They come and they steal his body to propagate the world's greatest con to become the world's most indefatigable foes to the rich religious establishment and the invincible Roman Empire, splitting their calendar twain and transcending the rise and fall of both of those tyrannies. And then all of them will be tortured. Countless more will be murdered and martyred while recording their own failures and, and weaknesses... In text, because of course, if you're going to write this story, you've got to make yourself look stupid in it. And then experience in this the total sacrifice of their own lives, everything they possess, everything of the life they once knew, for a self-invented lie. Let me ask you something: which of your average secular people out there, if you walked out there right now, could tell you two Roman emperors? Emperors! Which person out there could tell you one first-century Jewish leader? The average guy on the street. And yet this guy from the middle of nowhere that did all of this stuff, everything is based on him? Which book has been associated with either of those that is still on sale today and people actually buy? It's incessantly called a club for fools, for the weak, a crutch for outcasts, and yet it remains sustainably prominent, Profile and unstoppable this Christianity thing. And it has been a target of disdain, avalanches of ignorant diatribes and polemics, a club for ridicule and for forfeiture forfeiture and for mockery. Who wants to join this? Now they either had an extraordinarily delusional tenacity or they encountered a God so beautiful, so perfect, so loving, so welcoming that they became infected with the life of a God that has been transcending of death itself and has been resurrected and said, you know what, I'm going to be so infected with him that I'm going to become infectious to the rest of the world. Now you make your decision on that. I've made mine. And it says, so while these Roman soldiers are now trying to spare their own life, propagating this lie, verse 16, meanwhile, back in reality, the 11 disciples went into Galilee in a mountain which Jesus had appointed to them. And I think, wow, wait a minute, Jesus had appointed a mountain for them. I can't help but think of back in Matthew chapter 4, right at the beginning of all this, when they were dragging just sick people to Jesus with the simple mindset if I could get them to Jesus, he could fix them. That's what I knew. And Jesus goes, Remember this place? This is kind of where it all started, boys. And even back then, I told you this is what was going to happen. Now you get to look backwards. Do you see how it all plays out? It all went to the cross. And all went to the resurrection. And then Jesus says, No, all authority's been given to me. And because I have all authority, I have authority then to hand authority. And I'm going to give you guys authority. You guys. Peter, you, de- you denied me a few days ago, but I'm going to give you authority anyways. John, you were there at the tomb. You were there at the cross when I gave you my mom. I'm going to give you more authority. Thomas, you doubted, but I'm going to give you authority. James, you wanted to call fire down from heaven, but I I got authority for you. But understand, I'm not going to give you authority without a responsibility. That's the way God works. That's the way anyone intelligently works. And this is the way it works. So go now. I want you to go. And I want you to make disciples. Make students. Don't just make converts. People that are say, All right, I'll get off your back, I'll pray your prayer, go away. But I want you to make students. And I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the moment you baptize, you are going public with your faith. I want you to make students, and real students have to go public with their faith. They're not going to have this sort of secret, covert, undercover walk with God. It's going to be real. People will get killed for it, but so will you, so get over it. And I want you to go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all the things that I've told you. And then he says, oh, and listen, I'm with you, not just now. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The end result, the biggest blessing, the greatest profit in Jesus' resurrection He's with me, even to the end of the age. That's why I could go into the world. That's why we can make students. That's why we can proclaim with power. That's why preaching isn't empty. That's why your faith isn't empty. That's why you're not the most pitiful person on the planet. To be honest, you should be the most envied. That's why eat, drink, tomorrow we die. How about let's go out there and share the love of Jesus because tomorrow we stand before the living God. And when we do, that's when the real reward comes. And where are you at today? This resurrection is the most fundamental imperative thing with everything. It was this resurrection that caused the dead saints to come out of their graves and proclaim and walk around Jerusalem after Jesus was resurrected. Jesus himself said he is the resurrection. That's the corridor to a brand new life. So he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the thing that will take that old person of you, lay him down and give you a new you. In Acts, the disciples were witnesses to this resurrection. They preached the resurrection, gave witness to him. Paul preached the resurrection through Jesus. And it was that which caused the philosophers to retract and go, what? Resurrection? In 17. In Romans 1 verse 4, it tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. So no wonder why someone says, well, we don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. Well, then He can't resurrect, because it's the resurrection that proved He was the Son of God. By the way, it's the resurrection that proves that anyone is a son of God. It's the resurrection that makes the cross worth it. So what do I lay down at the cross? Who I was my identity, all of my ambitions and my priorities and everything that I knew of myself. And I lay it down there and I say, it's okay. Because on the other side of this cross is a resurrection. And that resurrection is a new me that has power and life and doesn't have to be owned by the things the old guy was. So I gladly lay that stuff down at the cross because the new me is so much better. The new me is a son of God with power. First Peter says he's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection. It tells us in First Peter three twenty one that it's because of the resurrection I can answer God with a good conscience and say, "All right, so I am now." Now look at today we celebrate His resurrection. I want to warn you tomorrow I'm going to celebrate His resurrection. You know what else? Today I'm going to celebrate my resurrection. How about yours? Tomorrow I'm going to celebrate my resurrection. I'm not the person I used to be. I am so thankful. Now, the Bible says, "Whoever comes to the Lord calls on His name, he'll be saved—safe from the person you are, safe from your guilt, safe from your filth." And if you've heard little to nothing up to this point, granted, we've had we've walked all over the place in this garden. Listen to this: Every human being on the planet is going to be faced with a choice. And before you concern yourself with who, what might what be happening with an aborigine somewhere or someone in China, though I can tell you all kinds of great things that are taking place in all of those places. It's your choice today. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son because we are filthy people in and of ourselves. We're guilty people. But God doesn't want you spending eternity that way. He's guarded it so that he doesn't want that to be the case. He wants to forgive you first. He wants to give you his innocence for your guilt, his life for your death. That's what he wants to offer. But that's your choice, not his. He's not going to force you into a love affair with him. That's stupid. That's not love at all. So there's a choice to be made. With all this information you've got, there's a choice to be made. The choice is, will you accept Christ's gift or not? The bottom line is, God doesn't want you to go to hell. He died on the cross so that you didn't have to go to hell. He rose again to offer you a new life so you didn't have to go to hell. And you don't have to even taste it now. But that's a choice you have to make. But in a moment here, we're going to have communion. But first, we're going to pray. Now, maybe this is the first time in your life you've ever prayed. Maybe this whole thing is so weird and so overwhelming. And yet, somehow in all of this, you know that there's a voice that tells you this is actually the truth. There are people that were basically no no one's. That God elevated to a place of radical and utter life-changing, world-changing position because they surrendered to a God who's alive. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, but I'm counting the cost. And I realize there's a lot of things I may have to give up. First of all, the good news is God will take those things from you, so you don't even have to try to fight him on it. But the good news is, is that if all you see is the cross, then you don't see the empty tomb. Today, my goal is to show you the empty tomb so that you can say the cross is worth it. I'll gladly lay this because God's not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. So instead of what forfeiture, it's actually trading. And you always trade up when you hand it to God. So as we go to prayer, I'm going to pray a prayer. And as I do, I ask you to listen. And as you listen to the prayer, the reason I'm not asking you to repeat after me is because I want you to genuinely listen. And as you listen, if you agree at the end of it all, I ask you to give a very bold, confident amen. And what you're saying by saying amen is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it. I don't even have to convince you. That's God's own spirit that will do that right now. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this beautiful text and all the wonderful things you've done in it. Lord, from the guards that fainted, Lord, to an angel that sits on a rock to you being the second witness, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you've never let anything be to chance and that the most important thing in the world, redeeming me, was so important to you that you did it yourself to leave no margin of error whatsoever. So I pray right now, Lord God, for myself, for these precious saints. I pray, Lord, that as I confess my love for you, my surrender to you, that it would be absolutely genuine. It would be from a complete heart of willing abandon. And here we go. Lord, I I recognize that I am a sinner. I recognize that I'm guilty. I'm not perfect but you never demanded me to be so. I believe, Lord, that you as a righteous judge have a right to punish all wrong, including mine. I also believe because you love me so much that you didn't want to spend eternity away from me, that you paid the price for all of my wrong by sending Jesus, your only begotten Son, to die on the cross on my behalf so that his innocence could be transferred to me while my guilt be transferred to him. And then he paid the price for my wrong, for my crimes. And in doing so, all of my filth and my shame are left at the cross. And then he rose again, just like he promised, just like you promised. He rose again to offer me a new life, a resurrected life, a life not owned by the things of this world anymore, but a life set free, forgiven, and pure in your eyes. So I say yes. I say yes to that gift. Saying Jesus be my ransom. Be my redemption. Be my savior and my Lord. I commit this to you now. I surrender to you. And I say father I'm yours. Have me as your own now. I want to be your child. Give me a resurrected life. As I give you the life I've given now. That I've lived. I'll take your new one. And I say yes to Jesus. And yes to you. I'm yours in Jesus' name. Amen.